Well, good morning. I am so excited to be with you this morning. And the reason why is because we have an opportunity to open God's Word. I don't know about you, but the Word of God excites me. Does it excite you? Okay, you know what? I am not convinced. Does it excite you? Yes, it does. It should. Here's the thing that's interesting is every time we open the Word of God, we come face to face with Him. And we come face to face with God. He has something for us. Uh, None of us are here by chance or coincidence, and the reason I know that is because God does not work that way. He has something for you, and so the question you have to answer is this. Are you willing to listen to him? And are you willing to live it out? Jesus said this, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is wise. Whatever hears these words of mine does not put them into practice is foolish. And my prayer this morning is this, is that none of us would be foolish. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive into this. Sound good? All right, let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to worship you and to worship the creator of the universe. And Lord, also the opportunity we have just to remember the sacrifice you made for us on the cross. Lord, may we never get tired of those two things. But Lord, these next few moments, we're going to open your word, and we know you have something for us because we're not here by chance or coincidence. And so I pray for each one of us, including myself, that you would give us the ears to hear whatever you have to say to us. Lord, I pray you give us the feet to live out whatever you challenge us with. Because, Lord, we know it cannot go in one, one ear, not the other. It has to be lived out so the world can see you. So I pray you would move all the distractions, get me out of the way. Lord, you're the potter, and I'm the clay, and I thank you so much for that privilege. In your name I pray, amen. You know, I was a kid, I looked up to my dad. Like, I mean literally. He was six foot four, and I was about this tall, and to, him, to me, he was a giant. I remember one time as a child, I took my hand and put it against his, and I was so amazed just how much bigger his hand was than mine. You know, I wanted to be like my dad, and so what I would do is this, is I would literally follow him around, okay? I was this little guy, and uh, I, I'm sure it frustrated him, but everywhere he turned, I was there. Right? In fact, I think a few times he stepped on me by accident. Right? But like I said, he was very gracious, very loving. And the reason why was because the things my dad did fascinated me. As a little kid, I was like, wow, this is amazing. One thing that really fascinated me was when he shaved. The fact that my dad could grow hair from his face impressed me. That was something my mom could not do. Well, at least she didn't admit to it, right? But anyways, here's the thing. And so I remember every time my dad would shave on a Saturday morning, I had a stool in his bathroom. And I would sit on the stool and I would watch him intently. Now, my dad was old school, right? He didn't have the shaving cream in a bottle. He had a cool brush and a bowl with a soap disc in it. And he would lather it up and he'd put it on his face. And I would sit there and I would watch and I would memorize his routine. I remember one day saying to him, Dad, am I ever going to get a chance to shave? He says, Dave, someday you will grow facial hair. I don't think he expected this much, right? (laughs) But I was so excited. Like, I am going to grow facial hair like my dad. I'll never forget that morning I woke up, went to the bathroom, went to the mirror, rubbed all the crap out of my eyes, and looked in the mirror and there they were, on the end of my chin, three cute little whiskers. And I was like, this is awesome. Today is the day that I shave. 
Now here's the thing is my dad wasn't home, but that was okay because I had watched him many times. I knew exactly what to do. I went to his bathroom, I grabbed the bowl, I grabbed the brush, I lathered it up, covered my face. You're like, Dave, you only had three whiskers. I know. I just wanted to be thorough, right? And so there I am with all the shaving cream on my face. I grab the blade, and like my dad did, I begin to pull it down my face. Now I realize something that, and that no one told me that you let the blade do the work. And there were times where I actually pushed a little too hard. And that white shaving soap became pink real quick. Now here's the thing, is I didn't freak out because my dad had cut himself. In fact, I got more excited because guys in the room, when you shave and you cut yourself, what does that mean? Toilet paper, right? And so I grabbed the toilet paper, I put it all over my face, I was like, this is awesome. After I was done, I looked in the mirror and seriously, it looked like I had chicken pox, right? Because I had all these little black things. But again, I didn't panic because my dad told me, when you cut yourself, it's a, it's a surface cut and it will clot pretty quickly. So I waited. And sure enough, I clotted, and so I pulled them all off, and then it was the final step. It was the aqua velva time. <laughs> and so I grabbed my dad's aqua velva. That was my dad's smell, and I was like, I am gonna smell like my dad, this is awesome. And so I put a lot in my hands, because I really wanted to smell good, right? And so I rubbed together, and then I applied it to my face. No one told me you do not apply aqua velva to open wounds, okay? I had a Kevin McAllister moment, right? <laughs> Ever watch Home Alone when he puts, it was like, it was so painful. Now you're probably wondering, Dave, why did you do this? The reason I did it was because I wanted to be like my dad. You know, when I got older, people would say to me this, they say, you man, you remind me so much of your dad, or you're just like your father. In fact, I'll never forget when my voice began to change, and I went from that high-pitched squeal to what you hear today, and I'm like, we were, we had, back in the day, and this is gonna blow your mind, is we only had one phone, and it was in our house. So if someone had to call you, they, I know this is weird, they actually called your house, right? And so sometimes I would answer the phone, and when my voice changed, I would pick up and say hello, and before I could explain to the person who it was, they would assume it was my dad. And I would go, no, this is Dave, and they would go, whoa, you sound just like your father. That's interesting, when I heard those phrases, it brought me great joy. Because I love the fact that people connected to me to my dad in that way. Because I so desperately wanted to be like him. But I realized as I, was, as I was growing up is that my actions and attitudes reflected who my dad was, but it also reflected what I believed about my dad. Now here's the thing, as Christians, I think the same thing applies to us. If you call yourself a follower of Christ, then get this, our attitudes and actions actually reflect, first of all, who Christ is, but also what we believe about Christ. You know, Ephesians chapter two, verse five says this, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. First John 2, 6 says this, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And so, what we see here is we're called to be living reflections of Christ if we truly believe what we believe about Christ. All right? You get it? Let's uh, take your Bibles, and I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We are on the final stretch. And if you have your phone or your Bible, I want you to turn there because at Blue Water, we believe that it's really important for you to see it for yourself. Don't take our word, okay? We want you to read it for yourself. So we're gonna be Hebrews chapter 13, verses one to six, 
okay? Now, as you're looking there, let me give you a little review. We all know this. The audience of this letter are former Jews who had converted to Christianity. And because of that, they were suffering because their family and friends were rejecting them. Okay? Those who were still Jews began to reject them. And we also know this, is that they were being seduced by false teachers to kind of lure them back into Judaism. And so they had gotten to a point because they had suffered and all that kind of stuff, they were wondering, is this really worth it? Is it really worth being a Christian or should we go back to Judaism? Because if we went back to Judaism, it would make things a lot easier for us. And we know this, that the author of Hebrews throughout his letter is making the case that Jesus is over everything. In other words, Jesus is better than anything that Judaism has to offer. And so, we come to chapter 13. And the writer of Hebrews gives one final exhortation. He says this, if you believe that Jesus is over everything, and you believe that to be true, then here's the thing, that truth needs to be reflected in your life. Look at verse one, let me read it for you. It says this, verse one to six says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality uh, to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And so if we hold to the truth that Jesus is above everything, what the writer of Hebrews says is this, is he gives us some evidences that need to be visible in our lives. So if we believe this to be true, then you've gotta see these things in your life. And the first evidence we see in verse one, it has to do with loving one another. It says this, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Now, I want you to notice, it doesn't say that we need to love each other as acquaintances or as friends. It says that we need to love each other as family. Now think about this for a moment. The way we treat family is a lot different than the way we treat friends or acquaintances. Because what you'll notice is this, is the level of sacrifice and the level of devotion is a lot higher. Now, Paul says, I mean, uh, the writer of Hebrews says this, is that we are brothers and sisters, but the crazy thing is this, is our connection is not flesh and blood. Our connection is the blood of Christ, amen? And because we are connected that way, the blood of Christ makes us children of God. And if I'm a child of God, and you're a child of God, then what that means is this, is that we are brothers and sisters. And let me tell you something, that love is very powerful. Because Jesus said this to his disciples in John chapter 13, he says this in verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples 
if you love one another. So what Jesus is saying here is this, is the world will know that you belong to me, not by the love you show to them, even though it's important that we show love to the world. He says, they're gonna know you belong to me by the love that you show for who? For one another. For brothers and sisters in Christ. Now in Acts chapter two, we see the early church and this commandment is lived out by them because they got it. They demonstrated this love uh, as, they, as they learned together, as they worshiped together, as they ate together, and as they sacrificed for one another. In fact, in Acts chapter two, my favorite part of that passage is actually in verse 47, and it'll be on the screen, it says this. So the church is living this way, and, and the world is seeing it, and it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Get this, people were coming to Christ not because of the door-to-door campaign they did. I'm not saying that's bad. But people came to Christ because of the love that they saw in this church the way they sacrificed for each other. You're telling me they sold their possessions and gave to people, not expecting anything back. They just gave it freely. I'm gonna tell you something, that kind of love is magnetic. And that kind of love is still as magnetic today as it was back then. And so, if we wanna reach this world, it's by the love that we show for each other. And that is why the author of Hebrews says, okay, if Jesus is over everything, then that's gotta be shown in your life because that kind of love reflects who Christ is. So, he moves from loving one another, and the next evidence we see here is in verse two, and it's this whole idea of loving strangers, and it's this idea of hospitality. It says this in verse two, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some of you have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. I remember as a kid reading this verse, or hearing this verse for the first time, and I was so fascinated. The fact that when we show hospitality to a stranger, we could actually be showing it to an angel. Right? Reminds me of a story in Genesis chapter 18. The story goes like this. Abraham is visited by three strangers. And he shows them hospitality not knowing who they are. And as you read the story, you'll, you discover that these three strangers are actually angels. In fact, some theologians believe that one of these angels was actually the pre-incarnated Christ. And so Abraham is entertaining these strangers but what he is doing is entertaining angels. I don't know about you, but that is mind-blowing. People always say to me, does this still happen today? All I can tell you is this, is I am not about to put limits on God. I have read stories, I have heard stories of this happening. Now what I wanna tell you though, no matter where you stand on that issue, what you need to realize is this, is that hospitality is a very powerful way of demonstrating who Christ is and what we actually believe about Christ, okay? So, love towards one another, love towards strangers. Then he says this, how about your love towards those who are suffering? Look at verse three, it says this. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison 
and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is this, we actually need to identify with them, okay? We just don't feel bad for them, right? We actually imagine ourselves with them. And so what we see here is the difference between sympathy and empathy. You see, sympathy allows us to feel bad for someone. Empathy is we actually put ourselves in their situation. And what I've noticed is this, is that sympathy moves us emotionally. But empathy actually moves us not only emotionally, but physically, because what happens is this, is we think to ourselves, okay, if I was in that situation, what would I need? And God brings the things to our minds, and he says, okay, now I want you to do is I want you to act on those things. And so the writer of Hebrews challenges us not just feel bad for those who are suffering, but to identify with them, which will ultimately cause us to act. The next evidence we see in verse four has to do with the family. It says this, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now we know this, that marriage is a covenant designed by God because we see that in Genesis chapter two, right? Genesis chapter two, verse 18 says, the Lord said, it is, it is not good for man to be alone, but I will make a helper suitable for him. And so God creates everything. He says everything is good, but the one thing that is not good is the fact that man is alone. And so he creates a partner and they become one because we see in verse 24, that is why a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and, the, and they will become one flesh, physically, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. Now here's the sad thing. Or, the fact is, because God created marriage, what the author of Hebrews says is it should reflect him. And that's why he says it needs to be honored and it needs to be kept pure. Now, here's the sad thing. Our society is leaning towards defining marriage according to what man thinks instead of what God thinks. Now, that is why I believe it is so important as believers, we choose to live out this verse. Because whether you're married or you're about to be married or you hope to be married someday, listen to me, our marriages our rich testimony of who God is and what we believe about God. And I think ever before, we need that kind of testimony in our world today. All right? Now, the last one that he gives us has to do with our relationship to money. Look at verse five, the beginning of it says, "Keep." Uh, your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now we know this, that money in itself isn't bad. The problem arises when we no longer control it, but it controls us. And that's why Jesus says this in Matthew chapter six, verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters, either you will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, here's the thing that's really interesting. Being a pastor for as long as I have, I have talked to people who think they can walk that line. I can do that, no problem. But what I've noticed is this, when push comes to shove, and you have to choose, our true loyalties always come to light. And if you don't believe me, remember the story of the rich young ruler, right? He comes to Jesus and says, 
what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, follow the commandments. And this guy goes, great. I've been doing that since I was a kid. And it's almost like Jesus in his mind is going, okay, so you claim this, but let's see when push comes to shove what you'll actually do. He says, okay. Now what I want you to do is take everything you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. And then he says this, and come follow me. Get this, Jesus is actually calling this rich young man to be one of his disciples. But how does the story end? It says he goes away how? Very sad, why? Because he had great wealth. When it came down to choosing, even though he said, oh yeah, I'm so loyal to God, when push came to shove, his true loyalties came to light. And what he did is he chose his wealth and his money over God. And so his money controlled him. Right? Now, how do we stop that from happening? Well, it's interesting. I was reading a book on money management from, from a godly perspective, and the person said this, is you have to check your grip. You see, there are two ways we can hold on to our money and our stuff. Number one is tight-fisted. Number two is open-handed. Now here's the thing about tight-fisted is we think we've got a good grip on our stuff, but look at me for a minute. Let me tell you something. If God wants to take your stuff, here's a newsflash, he'll take it because your grip isn't strong enough. Now here's the danger is when we are tight-fisted, all we're focused on is what we have and what we miss is the blessings of God that's all around us. But if we live open-handed with our stuff. What happens is this, is God can take it away, but what I've noticed in my life is God gives so much better back. And so here's what I want you to understand, is we live in a world that is tight-fisted. Right? It's all about me. And so what happens is this, is if we can live our lives open-handed, we will make a huge impact, because it will not make any sense. And what I've noticed is this, is when we're open-handed, guess what? We're a lot more generous. The early church, they sold their stuff and gave it to anyone who would need. Not with an interest rate, it wasn't loaning, it was like, just take it. And that messes with the world. Because that reflects who Christ is and what we believe about Christ. Now, I gotta be honest with you, I look at this list, as I was preparing, I was like, man, that's kinda overwhelming. Because this is not easy to do. This is like, this is sacrifice. And I, maybe I'm alone here, but I don't like to sacrifice. I will if I have to, but it's tough, right? The other thing I'm noticing is this, it's not popular. And the reason it's not popular is because to live this way means we are Christ-like. And the one thing I'm noticing in our world today especially is when you say you're a Christian, yeah, it's very interesting. You know, people always ask me what I did, and I said I'm a pastor. That is the quickest way to stop a conversation. I actually had someone, it's crazy, they're at the beach with my kids, and they, had never, they didn't know what I was doing, right? And so she was with her kids, and they were playing with Bobby and stuff, the two boys, and she said, oh, what, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm a, I'm a pastor. She said this, boys, it's time to go, and she walked away, and I was like, whoa. But what I'm realizing is this, is it's not popular to be a Christian, but we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said this, they're gonna hate you because of me. But that's okay. I look at the life of Jesus, and you look at it, it was a life full of love and compassion and grace and mercy. He sacrificed for people. 
But people didn't like him because the way he lived convicted them. And so instead of dealing with it in their life, they said, let's just remove the problem and let's just take his life. And so this is not easy to do. And this is the great thing, is the writer of Hebrews knew that because his audience was suffering. Right? He knew that, and so what he says, look what he says at, at, at the end of verse five and six. It says, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can, more, what can mere mortals do to me? Now, this verse is actually taken from Psalm 18, verse six in the Old Testament. And in this verse, there are two promises. Number one, there's a promise of God's presence. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So get this, we are not called to do this alone, which is like, whew, in my mind, right? But here's the second promise. It's the promise of God's power. The Lord is what? My helper. So not only are we not called to do this alone, but we're not called to do this on our own strength. And so those two promises bring us great comfort. But I want to ask you a question. And this question may be uncomfortable, but guess what? I'm okay with that. And here's the question. Do you really want to experience God's presence and power in your life? Now before you say, yay, just think about it for a moment. Because to experience God's presence and power, what that means is this, it's going to take work on your behalf. It is not going to be easy. There will be a sacrifice. You will not be popular anymore, right? But the fact is, is we need to do that. You know, I want to just make this applicable real quick by giving you two things to keep in mind as we leave today. If you want to experience God's presence in your life, listen to me, we have to practice solitude. And for a lot of us, we don't practice solitude because our lives are so busy. And maybe that's the problem. Because the Bible tells us that we experience, we experience God's presence in silence and solitude, right? Psalm 46.10, we know this one, be still and know that I am God. In fact, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is when God comes to Elijah. Uh, Elijah's on this mountain waiting for God to come, and it says this, a wind comes, but God is not in the wind. Then there's this earthquake, and God is not in the earthquake, and then there is this, this fire, and God is not in the fire, but then there's a gentle whisper, and God is in the whisper. Let me tell you something. God still speaks to us today in the whisper. And so my question is this, is why do we miss that whisper? The reason we miss that whisper is because there are so many distractions. I read this somewhere, it kind of blew me away. Do you realize that you have 40 million minutes in your life. I'm, almost, I'm over halfway, right? We have about 40 million minutes. Here's the crazy thing. We spend three years of that in the bathroom. I don't know what you're doing. I don't, know what you, I don't wanna know what you're doing, but you're in there, okay? Let's just put it that way. We spend about nine years on our phones. And I know some people who spend a lot more than nine years, okay? This is the part that scares me is we spend less than seven months with God. And so why are we surprised we have so many distractions? Because we are spending more time with the world on our phones than we are with God in his word. 
Now I know this, that some of us avoid solitude because we're afraid of what God might say to us. Because we know there's things in our lives that we're doing that God will be like, yep, this, this, and this has to change. And so we figure instead of dealing with it, we'll just avoid it. But let me tell you something, if you live that way, you miss out, because here's what I wanna say to you. If you believe that God loves you the way you say he does, then spending time with God in solitude is something you want to do. Because the things that God addresses, he's not doing it to ruin your life. He's doing it to save your life. Because his love for you is so great. Here's the second thing I wanna give you. If we wanna experience God's power in our lives, we have to practice surrender. And what that means is it means giving control to God, complete control. Now the reason we struggle with that is because in our world today, we get mixed messages. The world tells us to live for self. It's all about you, find the power within. You can accomplish this, you can get this, you can achieve this. But the word of God tells us that we need to die to self. Now I'm just gonna tell you, in my humanness, I like living for self better, I do. It feels better, there's less sacrifice. But I think the struggle, the way it helps us through the struggle is when we begin to understand, listen to me, who we are in God's great design for life. In other words, let me put it this way. When we understand who God is and who we are not. And for some of that, that's a bitter pill to swallow. But in light of God, we are nothing. It's because of God that we have value. And so I believe that Paul understood this because when I read this verse, which was really powerful, 2 Corinthians 12, 10 says this, and that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I love that statement. When I am weak, then I am strong. In fact, I love it so much, I actually did a study on it because I thought this is kind of cool. And so what I realized as I studied it is this statement is not consecutive. Now let me explain to you what I mean. Paul is not saying here is, okay, so I have a season of weakness, and once I get through that season of weakness, then I have a season of strength. He's not saying that. He's not saying it's consecutive. Experience this, then experience this. What he's saying is it's congruent. It actually falls on top of each other. What Paul is saying is in my season of weakness, that is when I experience the strength of God. And what I would tell you is this, it is when you come to the end of yourself that you begin to experience the power of God. And it's not until you get there that you truly experience that truth. Now I know for some of you in this room, I'm just being honest, this is going over your head because you have never come to the end of yourself. But for those of us who have, and without getting in great details, I don't, I don't wanna get emotional, I'm in that season right now. I'm at the end of myself. But I'm realizing that, the, that being at the end of myself, as painful as it is, it is the best place for me to be. And I know it's gonna sound really weird, because it's been over, not even over two months yet, I'm actually thankful for it. 
because I've experienced God's power in a way that I've never experienced it before. Because I've realized who God is and who I am not. And when you get to that point, that's when God can use us. So, let me just land this and end it by giving you kind of an overview of what we've looked at. The big idea of Hebrews, and we know this, is God is over everything. And so in chapter 13, he says, okay, so if that truth, if we believe that truth, then we've been reminded that we need to reflect it in our lives as it relates to the way we love one another, the way we, we, we love strangers, the way we relate to those who are suffering, to our spouses, and to our money. But here's the thing, is we do it all in the, in the light of God's promises, of his presence and of his power. But do not forget this. If we want to experience God's presence in our lives, we need to practice solitude. Because if you don't, you won't. That's the way it is. There's no shortcuts. And here's the thing I say to you, if we want to experience God's power in our lives, we have to be willing to practice surrender. We have to be willing to get to the end of ourselves. As painful as it is at times, we have to do that. Because in those moments, we realize when I am weak, then I am strong. Because we understand our strength doesn't come from us. It comes from our Savior. Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the fact that you love us. And thank you for the fact that you care enough for us that you want us to reflect you. Lord, I pray that the things that we have learned today, that we would be willing to reflect, that it wouldn't go in one ear and out the other, but we'd actually hit our hearts and motivate us to act. Lord, I know that what you're calling us to do is not easy and it's not popular, but that's okay because you've promised us two things. You've promised us your presence and you've promised us your power. But Lord, we know we cannot experience your presence unless we're willing to practice solitude. Lord, even this week, Lord, allow us to make time for, for being alone with you. And Lord, when we do, I pray that you would bless us with that time, so much so that we would actually hunger for it. But Lord, I also pray too that we would experience your power and we would be willing to surrender. We wouldn't be afraid of coming to the end of ourselves, but we would embrace it because we know when we come to the end of ourselves, that's when we experience you in amazing ways. So Lord, thank you for what you've taught us today. And we pray, amen. All right, you are loved. We'll see you next time.